You're listening to an ACR 2021 podcast, a compilation of reports, interviews, perspectives, and panel discussions that feature the Room Now faculty and noted experts. Hope you enjoy. Hello from Room Now. I'm Michelle Petrie with my second ACR update covering Sunday, November 7th. I want to talk about two background medications for lupus and what was new today at the ACR Convergence meeting. I think that two of the almost mandatory background medications are vitamin D and hydroxychloroquine. So first, vitamin D. Vitamin D is almost universally low in people with lupus. And I showed in one of the longitudinal Hopkins lupus cohort analyses how important vitamin D supplementation was to reduce proteinuria. But vitamin D has a lot of other cardiovascular and hematologic benefits. You know, basically it's a hormone, a sterile hormone, not really a vitamin. And one of its benefits is reducing thrombosis. But what was presented at today's plenary session was the VITAL trial. And the purpose of the VITAL trial was to try to figure out whether vitamin D supplementation of 2,000 units a day might prevent autoimmune disease. And in fact, it did, the hazard ratio of 0.78. But the problem is that it did not have enough lupus patients to comment on lupus. But here you see that the benefit occurred at two years. Now, here again is the problem. There are not enough lupus patients. Part of the reason was this was a study of middle-aged people. And of course, the lupus onset is usually going to be in younger people. But I still think it's interesting because our lupus patients get secondary autoimmune diseases, don't they? Like Sjogren's and autoimmune thyroid disease. So perhaps yet another reason to keep thinking about vitamin D and lupus. There was so much at today's meeting about hydroxychloroquine. So what do we already know? Here is the classic study from the Canadian rheumatologist showing in a randomized withdrawal study design that patients who stopped hydroxychloroquine had a 2.5-fold increase in flares. Now, remember, this was the 1991 study. So what Sasha Bernaski presented today was a repeat in a way of that study. But here is the reason why I don't want us even to be talking about this. I don't want to withdraw hydroxychloroquine in anyone because hydroxychloroquine has so many long-term benefits. And of course, I want you to remember it's the only medicine we have that improves survival. So I don't want to withdraw it with one exception. If someone has hydroxychloroquine retinopathy, then of course. So here's the Sasha Bernatsky presentation. And what you can see on the top is if hydroxychloroquine is reduced or on the bottom, if it's stopped, there is an increase in flares. So, you know, 30 years later, a study by a Canadian, Sasha Bernaski, confirms the original Canadian study of 1991. Now, there were many other things presented on hydroxychloroquine today. And, you know, I I love going through the poster. So here's one I thought was really important. It's on hydroxychloroquine and adverse cardiovascular events. And I know when you see this title, you think it's going to be about hydroxychloroquine, cardiomyopathy, you know, something so rare that in the last 40 years, I've only seen it five times. 
But no, this was a study of hydroxychloroquine reducing congestive heart failure, arrhythmias, and cardiac death. And so in both non-smokers and smokers, there was a significant reduction of these bad cardiac events with hydroxychloroquine. And in fact, for every one milligram per kilogram increase, there was a 28% reduction. So yet another reason not to reduce the hydroxychloroquine dose just because someone's skin and joint lupus is under control. Now, finally today, here is a poster on a brand new use of hydroxychloroquine. Now, of course, if a woman with lupus is pregnant, we want her to continue her hydroxychloroquine, but this is a study of primary antiphospholipid syndrome, showing if there was low complement and triple antiphospholipid antibodies, there were significantly better outcomes if hydroxychloroquine was added to the regimen of low-dose aspirin and prophylactic heparin. So what we learn about hydroxychloroquine keeps going and going. It was another wonderful day at the ACR Convergence meeting. Thank you and goodbye from Room Now. Hi, I'm Dr. Sheila Reyes, a rheumatologist from the Philippines, reporting for Room Now at the virtual ACR 2021. I found an interesting study on frailty and lupus by the group of Dr. Sarah Lieber, that's abstract number 869, on the comparison of two frailty definitions in women with FLE. They determined the pre prevalence of frailty using two definitions, the free definition and the slick frailty index, and compared whether there was agreement between these two metrics. 67 patients were analyzed in this study. Results show a moderate agreement between the two measures. Frailty was present in 18% and 27% of patients according to the FREED index and the SLIC-FI respectively. According to the FREED index, frail women were older, had greater comorbidities, and more likely to have smoked in their lifetime. On the other hand, according to the SLIC-FI, frail women had greater disease damage than non-frail women. They also reported that frail women had worse promise scores and greater self-reported disability using either definition. It may be quite difficult to really compare both measures directly because they have been constructed differently and further studies with a larger sample size might be needed to elucidate associations. Nevertheless, by identifying frailty and among female lupus patients using either definition, timely interventions can be given that can improve quality of life. Follow me on Twitter at Rumarampa and tune in to roomnow.com for more coverage of the ACR Convergence 2021. Thank you. Hi, this is Dr. Artie Kavanaugh from University of California, San Diego, and I'm coming to you from ACR 2021 Convergence Virtual. And on behalf of Room Now, which has been covering the meeting to a, a really great extent, and I would definitely encourage people to go on Room Now where you've got a lot of people covering a lot of the sessions, the, quite a number of sessions at the meeting, and some of them are 
overlapping. And although you can certainly go back and listen to some of them over again, uh, it just seems like it's never as uh, uh, good as just watching it when it's initially live. You get to see really the questions come out in real time and that uh, some of them are answered, some of them are not, but it's uh, it's certainly a lot of information out there. I've been a couple of presentations on uh, a sort of the uh, impact of socioeconomic factors and uh, race on different outcomes. So several of them, one this morning was on pediatric lupus, one yesterday was on lupus. Um, and I thought these, those are very interesting presentations. It's something we've certainly known about in rheumatology for some time, uh, looking at groups of people who are more or less likely to get joint replacements, for example. Um, so we've known this, and I think that uh, people have sort of scratched their heads about uh, how to address this in a way to make sure that really the most people enjoy the best outcome for any of the interventions that we have, be it a intervention or be it a therapeutic program of, of one sort. One of the things that struck me about these posters, though, is, is how complicated they really are. You try to look at any given factor and just say race and uh, outcome of lupus nephritis. Uh, and you can do that, of course, but then you have to consider so many of the variables. And really, I really enjoyed watching these presentations and just watching the comments go up and down the side because a lot of people were putting in comments or just commenting in the chat section and just the, the number of things to consider that could possibly confound the ultimate uh, observation that was made, namely that uh, say this this group of people had a worse outcome with the lupus nephritis than a different group of people did. Uh, you have to consider uh, not, not only uh, age and sex, of course, but socioeconomic status. But beyond that, uh, area uh, of residence. And, um, and certainly there's been some of this in the allergy immunology literature, particularly with asthma where it seems to be more direct, where you'd say, well, the closer you are to an inner city or where if you live next to a, a big highway, then you're going to have more pollutants that could certainly have a very direct impact on reversible obstructive airway disease. But I think the same thing holds relevant for studies in our diseases, uh, such as uh, SLE and probably other rheumatic diseases as well. I think when we think about the exposures, uh, we always talk about the rheumatic diseases being a, some genetic predisposition, although that's not super strong, but then really the epigenetic influence, which uh, probably relates a lot to uh, what the allergy folks are calling the exposome, the things you're exposed to. And of course, some of that would be the microbiome, but other that would be environmental. We certainly know about the relationship with cigarette smoking and rheumatoid arthritis, but uh, I think the area that you live in, really the, the, the micro area that you live in and kind of the, the quality of air, quality of water that go in and there, probably going to end up being an important factor. So it's good to have these studies, but boy, once you get in there and see the data, it just raises more and more questions about other factors that you need to know about to be able to really make any statement about causality. And that's what we want to see with these studies. So um, 
really uh, disparity is a hot topic. And I think we've seen some presentations of that ACR, but I think we're still in the early phases of learning about how best to do these studies, how best to configure them, and what sort of data we really need to get out of them to really be able to interpret. So uh, still more of the meeting to come. Thank you for watching. And this is Artie Kavanaugh coming to you for Room Now at the ACR 2021 conversions. Hi, I'm Jack Cush reporting from ACR 2021, the virtual meeting. Yesterday, a great abstract was presented during the plenary session by Dr. John Hanley. John has been working on the area of neuropsychiatric lupus for many years. He's from Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia. This presentation was about functional connectivity, enhanced blood-brain barrier leakage, and cognitive impairment in lupus. Simply stated, this is about cognitive abnormalities in lupus being linked to um, blood-brain barrier abnormalities, and that's actually all very subclinical in patients that we would otherwise characterize as having neuropsychiatric lupus. My studies in the past that, that looked at this showed about 50-55% of patients actually do, character, do have features of neuropsychiatric lupus, uh, except we don't go so far as to diagnose them. Um, it's only when they get these dramatic presentations of psychosis and seizures and uh, other, you know, focal and global findings do we get that diagnosis. In this study, they had almost 150 patients that they uh, assessed. They did functional uh, MRIs on them, and they did blood-brain barrier permeability assessments using diffusion contrast enhanced MRI, uh, a much more sensitive tool than the usual Q-albumin, which I'll talk about at the end. Um, they did cognitive testing in uh, their group, and they found that 48% of patients had evidence of cognitive impairment. A lot of questions from the audience were, how many people had lupus cerebritis or actually had neuropsychiatric lupus? And the answer was uh, almost very few. So this is sort of sub, a subclinical finding that you have to go after, but half the patients had evidence of cognitive impairment. When he mapped out the um, um, presence of cognitive impairment and the MR, functional MR associate, uh, findings that go along with that, uh, and then the amount of blood brain barrier permeability that was in, uh, impaired, they showed a fairly good correlation um, between the two, uh, and that was sort of surprising. And I think that this kind of data really calls for basically more research in the area. Again, they had 48% um, um, with an ab a cognitive abnormality. I'm reading some of the conclusions from the study. Um, you know, the bottom line is a lot of these tests we don't really have. You know, we don't do uh, functional MRIs. We don't have these tools for blood-brain barrier leakage and permeability problems. So um, we can do MRs, but they're often fairly nonspecific if we do that. And we don't have many studies that have looked at the utility of PET scanning and SPEC scanning in these patients. And it would be an expensive way of finding out information that we wouldn't really know what to do with. So what can you do? I don't think we, I think we need more research uh, from John and others that are working in this field. Um, if you want to know about, about blood-brain barrier, the simple measure is the Q-albumin. When you do a CSF um, spinal tap on a lupus with suspected cerebritis or infection or metabolic changes that affect the brain, 
uh, you should get an IgG index. You should get a Q-albumin. Q-albumin is normally less than 9. Um, about 20% of lupus patients will have a slightly elevated between 9 and 15, but really high Q-albumins greater than 15, and I'm talking like 30, 50, 100, are usually due to infection and vascular events, strokes and antiphospholipid-mediated events. Q-albumin is the CSF albumin times 1,000 divided by the serum albumin. Again, normally less than 9, but, you know, uh, and it's okay in cerebritis to be a little bit elevated. And they know the number of patients that they had in their population that had blood-brain barrier permeability abnormalities wasn't high. It was about it was less than 20%. So it could be that Q-albumin number between uh, of 9 and 15, about 20% of what, I'm, what I've seen in the past. That might jive with that result that he has there, but we don't have this. We need to have more research in this area, but it's good to make this correlation because if this is in fact contributing, you know, if autoantibodies, for instance, are leaking across from the serum into the CSF and mediating neuropsychiatric disease, then maybe that's something that we could therapeutically challenge in the future. Hope you enjoyed this abstract. See more on Room Now. Hi, this is Dr. Robert Chow from Northern Virginia, reporting live from ACR 2021 for Room Now. Um, I'd like to share with you a, a really interesting uh, abstract in the world of psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis, and it is abstract uh, 944. Um, and this focused on the uh, microbiome again. And we know that you know uh, up to 30% of psoriasis patients can progress into psoriatic arthritis. Um, there's a thought that there is this discordance in psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis suggests potential epigenetic or environmental factors playing a role. Um, there's also evidence that the microbiome has a, a significant impact on psoriatic disease pathogenesis. So the question is, is, what are some of the factors contributing to the transition from psoriasis to psoriatic arthritis? Uh, we know initially it could be dependent on factors such as obesity, uh, maybe biomechanical stressors, uh, infections, or even genetic factors such as you know, relatives and HLA B27 allele. Um, but is there a second hit, maybe like a trauma, comorbidities, or, or a microbiome related event even? And this study uh, tried to characterize the host microbiome relationship by studying the gut and skin microbiome. And I think the really interesting thing is this was a monozygotic twin study um, that were discordant for uh, psoriatic disease, meaning one uh, twin had uh, psoriatic disease and the other didn't. Um, and I think it was, it was the first of its kind. So stool and, and skin swabs were collected from nine sets of monozygotic twins. And uh, one who had, of course, psoriatic disease and the, the other being unaffected. And uh, these studies then underwent uh, metagenomic and RNA sequencing. Um, and again, they found ruminococcus was reduced or virtually absent in the gut of psoriatic patients. And this may be related uh, or associated with psoriatic disease. They also found two pathways um, that were upregulated, uh, including the tetrahydrofolate synthesis pathway. And lastly, they also noted uh, microbiome differences, even in healthy appearing normal skin of psoriatic patients and a decreased diversity compared to the unaffected twin. Um, I think, you know, we are obviously seeing more and more microbiome um, studies every year at these conferences. 
Uh, and the, there's a few questions that still remain. Uh, one, which is, uh, what are the downstream effects of, of these findings? I think we have a lot of studies that show we found something, but the question is, what do we do with these findings? How do we target them? Can we target them? And another interesting question is, are these microbiome differences um, affecting the disease pathogenesis itself, or could it potentially be affecting the drug metabolism uh, in, in our patients? Um, I think, you know, all very interesting questions and, and very promising studies, and I think only time will tell. So thanks for tuning in for uh, live coverage of ACR 2021. Uh, visit roomnow.com and follow me on Twitter at Dr. RBC. Thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Robert Chow from Northern Virginia, reporting live from ACR 2021 for Room Now. I'd like to share with you some of the best abstracts in spondyloarthritis today, day two of ACR 2021. Uh, the first abstract is 902, uh, looking at imaging of sacroiliac joints in the spine to see if they differ in patients presenting with undiagnosed back pain and psoriasis, anterior uveitis, and colitis. Um, overall, they found no difference in unilateral versus bilateral radiographic sacroiliitis and no difference in frequency, type, or distribution of the MRI lesions in the sacroiliac joints and spine. So this is very interesting because it showed that overall imaging the sacroiliac joints in the spine did not differ in psoriatic, arthritis, uh, psoriatic axial spinal arthritis patients and axial spinal arthritis patients associated with iritis and colitis. And perhaps that we could use an umbrella term of axial spondyloarthritis. The next abstract is 924. And this was the two-year open-label extension trial of upadacitinib from the Select Axis 1 study. And this looked at the efficacy and safety of upadacitinib in patients with active ankylosing spondylitis. Patients were randomized uh, to upadacitinib 15 milligrams daily versus placebo in the original trial. And in this two-year study, 144 patients were studied. Uh, results were similar at two years compared to 14 weeks in the original trial, including maintaining the ASAS-40 response. The MRI spark spine and sacroiliac joint scores decreased at 14 weeks and maintained at two years. There were no new serious safety signals uh, at two years. And again, infections were the most common adverse effects. There were no serious infections, uh, tuberculosis, uh, major adverse cardiovascular events, lymphoma, or non-melanoma skin cancers, or GI perforations. They did have one episode of a pulmonary embolism, uh, but that was in a female patient with the previous history of a lowered leg DVT with a history of smoking and obesity. Uh, there were also incidences of herpes zoster, colitis, and uveitis. And lastly, there were some uh, mostly asymptomatic elevations of creatinine kinase. So thanks for tuning in for uh, live coverage of ACR 2021. Please visit roomnow.com and follow me on Twitter at Dr. RBC. Hi, this is Dr. Robert Chow from Northern Virginia reporting live from ACR 2021 for Room Now. I'd like to share a really interesting abstract, uh, abstract 957 from one of the plenary sessions today. And this abstract focused on vitamin D and omega-3 fatty acids and the reduction of uh, autoimmune diseases. We know that vitamin D has been associated with reduced risk of several autoimmune diseases and omega-3 fatty acids decrease systemic inflammation. 
But this studies was one of uh, the first in its kind, uh, being the first prospective randomized trial. This study was the VITAL study, which was a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial where patients took vitamin D 2,000 international units and or omega-3 fatty acids 1,000 milligrams per day versus placebo over a very long period of time, over five years. Uh, they tested the effects of vitamin D and omega-3 fatty acids on the development of autoimmune diseases, including rheumatoid arthritis, polymyalgia rheumatica, autoimmune thyroid disease, psoriasis, and others. Um, they had over 25,000 patients randomized and found that patients who took vitamin D and or omega-3 fatty acids reduced incidence autoimmune disease by 25 to 30%. They also noted uh, a lower rheumatoid arthritis and polymyalgia rheumatica incidence. And they found that the effect of vitamin D appeared stronger after two years. I think a few take home points for this study is that it provided uh, us with information that we've been expecting and that we wanted to hear. It's very uh, promising that a, such a good trial such as this um, you know, showed efficacy in terms of vitamin D and omega-3 fatty acids um, in reducing autoimmune disease. Uh, but a few things to note is that this study only enrolled patients who were uh, over 55. Um, so for our younger population, um, you know, perhaps the data can be extrapolated, but I think only time will tell. So thanks for tuning in for live coverage of ACR 2021. Please visit roomnow.com and follow me on Twitter at Dr. RBC. Thanks.